Hey everyone, Kevin here from Skywatcher, and welcome to another episode of the What's Up webcast that takes place every Friday, 10 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Skywatcher USA YouTube channel. Now every week we dive into something different for astronomy, and this week we are talking about imaging filters. Um, last week we talked about visual filters, but this week we're making the transition back into uh, imaging because honestly that's where a lot of the interest and a lot of the demand for amateur astronomy is nowadays everybody wants to take pictures so they can share it with their friends and post it on social media and just capture those amazing moments that take place up in the sky so this week we're going to be diving into those filters that will help your shots improve or um, just what's going to allow your images to look a little bit uh, better from your location and the advantages that those filters are going to give you. So let's get started. Uh, of course, if you could save all your questions till the end, I will get to those when I can because uh, we will do a Q&A at the end of the webcast. It just makes it easier to get all of your questions answered. So. Uh, just uh, bear with me and uh, we'll have a good time. So let's get going. Uh, first, uh, of course, today we're talking about imaging filters and uh, there are so many imaging filters out there that today's gonna be busy. So uh, first thing about filters that we need to take a look at is of course the visible spectrum. And this is the spectrum at which our eyes detect light. Now, the visible spectrum when it comes in form of astrophotography is gonna be very, very different because we're now using cameras. And the cameras are way more sensitive than the human eye is ever going to be and gives us an extended range uh, beyond the limitations of these things right here. Uh, but what you see in front of you is pretty much the visual spectrum and for the most part everything we're covering today uh, will fit within uh, these collection of colors. So uh, first off, big question, why filters? What do they do for us? What's the advantage of them? Is it going to do anything for me moving forward? The answer is yes. Uh, so let's take a look at those real quick. Uh, filters do two major things for us. They isolate particular wavelengths of light and they block unwanted wavelengths of light. So, you know, of course, there are at times when we want to photograph something, there might be some kind of intrusive light, like light pollution, um, or maybe there's something you want to observe specifically. And filters can help isolate those wavelengths of light for what you want to capture and hopefully make your image pop a little bit more or make certain details that you want to see uh, easier to observe. Now, imaging filters, unlike visual filters, have a wide variety of sizes. Um, visual filters generally have two sizes where imaging filters have multiple sizes. So um, we're going to talk about that right now with filter mechanics. So. As you can see right here, uh, our friends at Astrodon uh, let us borrow some pictures as well as Optolong. So thanks to those two companies for letting us use your photos of your products. 
Um, as you can see here, there's a bunch of different size filters that you can use on your imaging setup. And a lot of it really varies on a couple different variables. So let's we're going to break it down and take a little bit closer look. We're going to go down each size and uh, just kind of cover the advantages and why we have all these uh, different things. So, of course, imaging filters come in various sizes. And the reason why the sizes are different are probably pretty obvious for most people um, that have been in the hobby, but for the most part, it has to do with illuminating the sensor. So if you've got a big, fat, full-frame sensor, you're going to need a big set of filters to make sure all that light coming from your telescope lands and illuminates that sensor. Um, if you've got too small of a sensor, you're going to clip it and vignette, and you're not going to get that awesome picture that you're looking for. So really, the size of the filter all has to come down to the chip that you're going to try to illuminate. So, And that's why we have this wide variety of filter sizes. So the most common that we're all familiar with for the most part is inch and a quarter. Um, of course, inch and a quarter is also in the visual side, but it also bridges into the imaging side. Uh, this is the most common size. And the nice thing about inch and a quarter filters, uh, which I've got a set right here, um, is they're threaded. So they've got a, a nice little threaded uh, cell so you can easily undo them from whatever you're doing. This is a filter wheel carousel. Um, but they are threaded, so you can thread them onto whatever you want or thread them into your filter wheel. It makes it really easy to just pop them in there and go. So that's why you see inch and a quarter um, a lot. Um, another reason is they're um, compatible with a lot of different sizes of cameras. Now, we have camera sensors ranging in all different sizes, but a lot of our stuff is relatively um, smaller on the budget-friendly side. Um, so inch and a quarter can handle most decent size sensors for what we're all gonna be using for the most part. Um, 16 millimeter diagonal is generally the safe spot, but you can use it on four-third size sensors. If you're using a telescope, let's say about F5 or slower, it all has to do with that light cone. If the light cone is kind of, you know, not super harsh, like an F5, then it can slip through that inch and a quarter filter and not clip any or vignette any bit. Um, if it's a real steep, like after you start to dip into F4 and especially F3s, that light cone is really, really steep coming off of that. So that filter might restrict the throughput uh, for that light cone and start it to vignette. So that's where the you'd move up in filter size. But inch and a quarter is the most common. You can pretty much find any filter you want in an inch and a quarter threaded cell and makes it really convenient to mount into your system. The next size is of course the 31 millimeter. Uh, this is an unmounted uh, filter, uh, which means it has no threaded cell. These uh, drop into your filter wheel or carousel or whatever you're using and they have clips that keep them down. Now the 31 millimeter you don't see too often unless you're familiar with the QSI uh, CCD camera series. 
These have a built-in filter wheel that's very low profile and very close to the sensor. So because of that, they can get away with this uh, uh, slightly smaller size filter um, in comparison to what you would normally use on, say, a uh, sensor that's 22 millimeter diagonal, like the really popular 8300 sensors and a lot of new sensors that are 22 millimeter diagonal a 31 millimeter could illuminate that as long as the filter wheel is close to the position of the sensor so it doesn't clip the light cone but for most people using um, this uh, particular size sensor a 22 millimeter size sensor you're probably going to be more familiar with the 36 millimeter filters and uh, this is another unmounted filter so when you buy these they're literally just like a a plate of glass and then they drop into your filter wheel and are held in by uh, usually two to three clips and uh, 36 millimeter is really designed for those 22 millimeter uh, filter or 22 millimeter diagonal sensors like the 8300s and four third sensors and other cameras like the uh, ZWO 1600s um, stuff like that. The 36 millimeter filter is most likely what you go with if you're not going to be using, like I said, inch and a quarter uh, filters. You'd probably be using an unmounted 36 millimeter filter for the most part. Now, moving up in size, the next size is we're getting big now. We're getting to the two inch or the 48 millimeter filters. Uh, these, of course, are threaded and uh, this is probably the most common filter size after the inch and a quarter um, reason being is because they're threaded it's really easy to just install them into a filter wheel and they can handle a really wide range of, of cameras um, you can go up to like an APS-H which is a 28 millimeter diagonal uh, that would be like a 16200 sensor if you're familiar with some of the CCD and uh, CMOS sensors coming out. Uh, APS-H would be a 16200 sensor, so 28 millimeter diagonal. And you can use these on full frame if you're doing F5 or slower. Again, it all has to do with that light cone. So if the light cone's really steep on a fast scope, it would clip on a full frame and cause it to vignette with 48 millimeter filters. Um, but if you're not doing anything super deep like that, then you could uh, work with a full frame with 48 millimeter filters. Um, if you want to work with full frame and have no restrictions, and what I mean by full frame, that's a full 35 millimeter sensor. Um, then we have, of course, the 50 millimeter unmounted uh, filters. These again are just full unmounted. They drop into a filter wheel. They've got clips. I think uh, I don't have it near me. I actually have a, I don't have it here. Um, I do have a carousel laying around um, from Starlight Express, and I'm not sure where it is at the moment, but it, it's a nine position um, carousel to handle these filters. I was going to show you guys how the clips work, but it's not in reachable distance at the moment. Uh, so these are good up to full frame. So if you're using a 35 millimeter sensor and you want full illumination with no restrictions, the 50 millimeter unmounted is really the way to go. So uh, there's that one. Now, uh, 
If you're familiar with the 50 millimeter CCDs, that would be like the 11,002 sensor, um, which is really well known from like the old SBIG STL 11,000s. Um, then you have the newer SBIG like STXL 11,000 or whatever they call it now. And then some of the newer um, full frame sensors coming out from like CWO and QHY and um, various other brands um, can use filters like this. So, but they get big. Uh, now, the last one we're gonna talk about because filters actually can be custom made to any size that you need to from some manufacturers um, is the last common one that we generally see is the 50 millimeter square unmounted um, again there's no cell these are as i said squares they're not round um, these are made for very large sensors up to 56 millimeter diagonal um, for some of our more seasoned astrophotographers you've probably heard of uh, like the 16803 sensor which is a 36 by 36 square 16 megapixel sensor uh, that's really where these 50 millimeter filters come into play and uh, they allow illumination of that square filter without any problem. Uh, do keep in mind though that just like telescopes, the bigger the glass, the more expensive they're going to be. So um, when you're talking a filter set of 50 millimeter round or particularly 50 millimeter square, they get pricey. So just know that when you go up to bigger cameras, the equipment and the optics that have to go with that are also part of that. Now the last filter I want to talk about is of course the clip-in filters. And these are these range in sizes and designs. It really kind of depends on the manufacturer. Um, they're made to clip into either a DSLR or mirrorless camera body. And Basically, rather than having to thread the filter in somewhere in the light path, it's really convenient to just slip it into the camera body and it lets the filter be right where it needs to be. Um, so you can get these from a variety of different companies. Um, you want to make sure that your camera is supported. So companies like um, Astronomic, they were kind of the first ones to really make the clip-in filters. Um, or... Uh, Optolong is now making clip-in filters and there's a there's a couple others um, but they all make various filters to drop in and the filters are pretty much standard across the board is what is what they do but you need to make sure that the mounting cell that the filter resides in will work with your camera body so be careful on the details there because um, they are camera specific so if you're looking for clip-in filters, definitely check back in um, with the manufacturer. And we may do a whole set of videos on using filters with like DSLRs and camera lenses because the way you handle filters for those particular systems uh, is a little different than telescopes. but. Um, Today we're just talking about basics of filters, but maybe we'll do something specific for that because you have to handle filters a little differently and where they're positioned when you're using lenses like a DSLR lens that's just really fast or in body. So uh, maybe we'll do that in the future. So um, 
to break that down, um, size really depends on your equipment, what camera you're going to be using or how big the sensor is, and then how fast your imaging setup is. That's really what dictates the overall uh, use of what filter size you need to go with. So just something to um, keep an eye out for when you're building your imaging system. Be aware of what filters that you might need. Now, housing your filters, or basically where they could be installed or how they can be installed. Uh, the most basic one, as we see here, is just threading your filter onto the front of the camera nose piece. Um, and all the nose piece, most nose pieces for cameras have either, if they're inch and a quarter, they have the threads for inch and a quarter filters, or if they're two inch, they have threaded uh, threads for two inch filters. So that's why those two are most common. And you can just thread that right to the front of the nose piece and pop that camera in and you're good to go. So that's something you can definitely check out for, um, for mounting your, your setup there. Um, this is probably the easiest method. It doesn't require any additional hardware. But if you want to be able to switch filters, then you have to pull the camera out. You've got to switch the filters around. And that can affect how you line up your shots. And if you get dust on the sensor or the filter, then you have to take new flat frames and calibration frames. So that's something that you got to keep a thought about. So uh, to prevent that, if you want to keep your whole imaging system together and not have to disassemble it, the easiest way for that would be a filter drawer. Um, and the nice thing about the filter drawer is your filters actually reside inside, and I actually have one right here. Your filters would reside in this little uh, drawer assembly. So this is threaded for two inch filters. Um, and there's adapters where you can use inch and a quarter and um, like 36 millimeter unmounted with clips. Um, and what this does is you can then, the drawer assembly, what you can see right here, this just threads into your system. So like if you've got your telescope and the field flattener and the camera, this would thread somewhere in there and this housing would stay in the, the optical train. And then the drawer allows you to pull that in and out without disassembling your whole setup. Um, these are really nice, um, especially if you're doing like one-shot color cameras where you don't need to switch filters all the time. Uh, filter drawer is really convenient because you can pop in whatever you want really easily. Uh, this particular one is the Star Arizona uh, filter slider. So um, that's, that's one that's worked really well. There's other ones, Botter makes a filter drawer. Um, and you can look around, but um, this is the one that I've used and I see a lot of people using, so it, it works really convenient and easy. And then the filter drawer stays in place. It's got some magnets captured in there, so it just clips in and stays in position. So really, really easy uh, setup to use. So if you're looking to add a way to flip filters really easily without pulling your setup apart, um, a filter drawer is the way to go. Now the ultimate way to do that, especially if you have multiple filters, is of course a filter wheel. And a filter wheel uh, houses a what's called a carousel, which you can see on the screen there, that's a much larger carousel. Uh, those are two inch uh, 
threaded filters right there. So um, that's a nine position wheel. So lots of filters can go in there. Um, the nice thing about these is you can load the filters that you want in there and then you can put your filter wheel in the, the imaging train and then using software, they make manual ones, but most of them are electronic. Um, you can then move the filter into place and you never have to touch it. And the nice thing about it is these filter wheels actually keep your filters nice and clean and you don't have to worry about you know, disassembling. You know, here's a seven position filter wheel um, from Starlight Express. Um, so the filter wheel, the front plate's off, obviously. So you pull the carousel out, load your carousel, pop that back in, and then there's a little motor that basically spins the filters into the position that you want. So that allows you to keep up several filters depending on the filter wheel being used. Um, the most common ones that you see are like a five position like this, and they can go up to seven positions really common, or what you see in front of you on the screen there, that's a nine position, which is getting pretty big. Um, but there's all different kinds of ways to approach that. But a filter wheel makes things really easy to move multiple filters. Uh, you just have to get used to having a Frisbee essentially to attach the back of your telescope because it, the bigger they get, the more they take uh, the filter wheel you see on the screen right here. Um, the wheel that that carousel goes in is about 10 inches in diameter. So imagine attaching that plus the camera on the back of that. There's a lot that you have to, to mess with there. But it works really well because all your filters are clean. They're inside there at all times, so they're safely housed and nothing will happen to them. So that's that's pretty much it for uh, mechanics. Um, now the next part there is we're going to get into the tech side of it, and that's filter graphs. And we talked about this last week for visual, and the same thing applies here for um, imaging. Now on the x-axis, we have the wavelength. So remember back to that um, spectrum we saw earlier. The human eye generally picks up around 390 to just past 700-ish nanometers. Um, and if you're not sure what a nanometer is, that's a one billionth of a meter. Um, really, really tiny. Uh, so generally graphs look like this. So on the bottom, the x-axis, that's generally the wavelengths that are covered for that filter. And the y-axis is to transmission or how much light in percentage passes through that filter. Now, you really want to look for filters that give you really high transmission. So most imaging filters are at least 80. Um, some of the better ones are 90 plus percent because your telescope's going to be focusing all that light. You want to be able to capture as much of that as possible. So you want a filter that's got a good amount of transmission. And most of the higher end filters and most production filters show a graph like this to show you the transmission. And then, of course, on the uh, x-axis is the range that the filter covers. And if you want to see what this looks like with the spectrum applied on top of it, it would look something like this. Um, this is pretty close. It's not absolutely exact, but it's pretty close. Um, and we'll be using this as we go on later in the presentation here. Uh, lastly, your filter graph is probably going to look something like this. You'll see a set of... Uh, 
lines eventually coming up to a peak and then you have valleys and the peak shows which wavelengths are being passed and then that's how you can see on the nanometers down at the bottom there so down here you see that this particular filter peaks at right around 656 nanometers way over here which is way in the red and um, it's got a pretty good transmission rate almost 95 percent for this particular filter so probably about 92 that's so you got a lot of light going through and it's dialed in on that particular wavelength um, and then another part of this is bandpass, which we're going to get here in just a second. Uh, the narrower that peak is, the more precise the bandpass is, or more precise wavelength of light that it's tuned to allow passing through the filter. And we'll get into details here in that in just a second. Um, so let's break into filter types. Uh, there's two major types that you're going to be using for imaging purposes. Uh, the first one, of course, is broadband, and then the other one is narrowband. And we're going to take a closer look at both of these and kind of go over the advantages of each one. So let's start with the broadband because they're generally the most common. Uh, broadband filters allow a wide or broad um, amount of light to go through but they're selective on what light is going through and they block other wavelengths of light that we don't want and a graph for this filter would look something like this so the red is the pass and the blocking so we can see here it passes light right here and then it comes down to a valley which means it's blocking the light and it comes back up here to the valley or the the peaks and it's passing all this light and then comes down to block whoops there we go um, another peak where it's passing blocking passing blocking passing and then the green lines here represent some of the major uh, emission bands that we want to capture so like hydrogen alphas right here sulfur um, right here would be oxygen 3 and then you have H beta um, right in here and then all these orange lines that are standing vertical those are generally lines um, emitted by light pollution um, you know specific types of street lights and anything like that you can see that the filter is tuned to block or subdue the light being emitted from those uh, types of sources while passing the major ones that we want to see, like the green. So that's that's what we're looking at there. Uh, so these filters are generally good for light pollution. Um, you see them quite a bit for that. And it allows for all the color channels, blue, red, green, blue, to pass through it. Uh, so let's check out some of the basic broadband filter types. And the most common one is called an LPS filter or light pollution suppression. Um, this basically reduces light pollution, just like that graph we just saw. It blocks street lights and other wavelengths that might uh, hinder your images, but it also allows the, the wavelengths that are generally emitted by celestial objects to pass through, uh, giving you more contrast. 
So this is very good to use in urban areas. You can do it in dark sky locations. It will never be as good as a dark sky site is going to be, but it can be very helpful to have in the city when you're imaging to help reduce that and pop some of the detail that you want. Uh, if you're doing monochrome, you can use these as replacements for a luminance filter rather than using a standard uh, luminance filter, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, you can actually use this in place of it if you really want to. Uh, now here's just a collection of some of the popular ones that I'm aware of for light pollution suppression filters that are good for imaging. Um, I haven't played with all of these, but I've I've played with several of them. I've got friends who play with a lot of these, and these are kind of the ones that uh, peak up a lot on the radar. So you have the Astronomic CLS CCD, uh, Botter Moon and Sky Glow, uh, the Chroma Low Glow. Uh, I have that one, it works really well. Uh, IDAS D1, and then IDAS D2 is a newer filter which is actually adapted to blocking some of the uh, LED street lights. So if you live in an area that has LED lights and need a little bit more boost, uh, you can check out the IDAS D2 filters. Uh, they're more tuned to handle light pollution from LED. Uh, then you have IDAS P1 their v4 and you can go on their website and check out their filter specs it'll show you all the differences between these ones and then of course you have the optolong cls and the optolong l pro um, which i'll do they're all very very similar they all work very well but they all have very very similar attributes to one another so um, any of those will work for you particularly for imaging the other type of broadband filter that we see a lot is generally a collection and you're using these mostly with monochrome cameras is of course the luminance red green and blue also known as lrgb uh, these are normally sold in kits of four so you get l r g b they're usually packed together uh, this filter set is only used for monochrome not you could use it for color but there's not really any reason for you to do it uh, the luminance filter or this clear looking one is a UVIR filter for the most part. There's some variations from certain companies for light pollution and certain things. Um, but for the most part, it's a UVIR is what it is. And this passes all the, all the visible spectrum and cuts off the ultraviolet and the infrared. And this is what you would get most of your detail in your image out of. So you would do long exposures, lots of them through illuminance. It would build the main structure of the image. And then you would go back and add your red, green, and blue. And of course, those filters do exactly what you think they do. The red passes the red filter, blocks blue and green. Green passes green, blocks red and blue. And blue passes blue and blocks red and green. And so you'd, you'd build your overall structure of the image in the luminance, and then you do a short set of exposures in red, green, and blue, and then that's how you get a final color image with a monochrome or black and white camera, is with a filter set like this. And those are your basic broadband. So you have your LRGB filter sets, and you have your uh, light pollution suppression filters. For the most part, there's a couple others in there, but for the most part, for imaging, those are the two major ones that you're gonna see. 
The next set, of course, is narrowband filters. And you hear a lot about these in imaging, so we're gonna spend some time in here. Uh, narrowband filters are very precise filters. They're dialed in to only pass one particular or narrow section of light. Unlike their broadband filters, uh, these are very precise in selecting an absolutely single piece of the spectrum and only passing those frequencies. And their graphs would look something like this. You can see it blocks everything except that particular wavelength of light. Uh, Narrowband filters um, are generally measured in what's called a band pass. And you hear this a lot when you're actually shopping for narrowband filters. You're like, what's the band pass? Well, the band pass is how much light passes through that filter. Um, and this is also measured in nanometers. So we're measuring in a billionth of a meter with a billion with a B. Uh, narrower band pass filters give you more contrast because they're getting very selective on what light is going through there. So the finer that uh, band pass is, the more contrast in your image that you're gonna get. And like we saw earlier, uh, the band pass you can see is how narrow this peak is. And we'll show you here in a second. But the narrower that peak, the more selective or narrower the band pass that filter is. Uh, the one trade-off that you do get is there is less light going through there. So you generally have to have longer exposures. So, but you're getting more precise on the wavelength that you want. And sometimes that can be beneficial depending on what you want. Uh, so here's just some comparison graphs. Uh, these are from Chroma filters. So thank you to Chroma for letting us borrow these. Uh, this is their eight nanometer uh, filter. You can see it's it's narrow, it does a nice job. It's got a good transmission on really good transmission on it actually, and it's eight nanometers, um, which is, is decent. Um, if you wanna step it up a little bit, you can go up to the five. And if you see right there, the graphs get, how that peak gets narrower, that's that transmission, that bandpass is getting thinner. It's getting more precise and exactly what we want to get out of that filter. Now, if you wanna go all the way to the top, top shelf filters, um, at least for the amateur market, if you're in a professional world and you've got an unlimited budget to do whatever you want, everything's on the table. But the most precise filter that you can get as far as bandpass is a three nanometer. That's super tiny, um, but they're very, very precise. The image contrast is crazy on these because you're getting exactly what you're looking for. You're right on the band of light that you're looking for. Um, but as you get more precise on the band pass, the filters get progressively more expensive because you're getting more and more precise um, on the band that you want. Uh, something to think about though, uh, particularly in this day and age, because it's getting really popular, is the F ratio of your telescope is going to affect how your filter is going to work. So F ratio matters when we're talking about narrowband filters. Uh, if we're talking about uh, F ratios below F4, and this is probably more towards F3, honestly, um, but as you start to get to those really fast systems, 
you can start to affect how the filter works. So if you're using something really, really fast, like let's say close to F3 or even under F3, the filter that you use is very, very important because if you are using filters like three narrow, three nanometer bandpass filters, and you're running it, let's say on a Rasa um, or like a Hyperstar, what happens is the cone is so steep in something like that because it's so fast. We're talking F3, F2.8, F2. Um, and this is the same thing with camera lenses. It's so steep that when you use some of these narrow filters, it can cause it to clip um, and shift the wavelength of light being used in and the filter performs on. So if you use really narrow filters on a fast system, you're actually causing the filter to offset uh, the light and it's not letting in the light that you're exactly wanting. So it's not performing 100%. So you'd have to step back and go with a broader, uh, slightly broader band pass if you're using really fast optics. This is something you need to keep in mind if you're using camera lenses, uh, the Celestron Rasa series, Hyperstar and any other sub F4 uh, optical systems. It's not the end of the world. There are plenty of filters to support it out there. But if you're going to be using um, some of this stuff, like if you're using a Rasa or a Hyperstar, like I've got a Hyperstar. This is my image over here uh, with my uh, C11 Hyperstar. Uh, this was taken with a 7 nanometer uh, filter. Perfectly fine. So if you if you see some of those seven or eight nanometer filters, that'll work just fine. It's really when you start to get like that five nanometer band pass and the three nanometers, those are where things start to get a little difficult on those fast systems. But if you're talking six, seven, eight nanometer band pass, um, you're you're totally six point five. If you've got the Optolong filters, those will work just fine. Um, I know Botter also has a set of their fast. Uh, narrowband filters um, those work as well they are like a 10 or 11 nanometer bandpass filter so they're not as tight as um, on the bandpass as some of the other ones are but they still work it just you won't have the contrast that you will if you had like a 7 nanometer filter another thing to keep in mind with bandpass is if you're shooting in town or if the moon is up, the narrower that band pass is, the more restrictive it's gonna be to that light as well. So if you wanna shoot in town and you wanna do narrow band stuff like this, um, look for like a narrow band filter with like a, an eight or less band pass, and that'll really help to clip out some of the light pollution. And if we're talking about filters um, eight or less, uh, you can use that when the moon is up and it will clip out uh, certain wavelengths of light. And I'll go into the specifics here as we break down each filter because they're not all one-to-one -one the same on how you should handle um, each filter. So uh, let's break that up real quick. Uh, so narrowband filter types. The, the first one, the most popular one, the one you hear about all the time is hydrogen alpha. This is the, if you need a narrow band filter, this is the one that everyone starts with. Uh, H-alpha is way over here in the red part of the spectrum. You see that line right there? That is the H-alpha line. And uh, the nice thing about H-alpha is it's emitted 
from pretty much any type of nebula. Even some galaxies have uh, what's called H2 regions. They're star-forming regions. Um, those have a lot of hydrogen in them, and they activate in that frequency of light, which is 656 nanometers, which is way in the red. Um, this cuts out nearly all the light pollution um, because a lot of the light pollution coming from streetlights does not emit light in this part of the spectrum. So using this type of filter will completely eliminate a lot of that light glow and uh, moonlight. Uh, so excellent if you're into shooting nebulas, especially from light polluted location, this does it all. Um, this is available from 12 nanometers, there's even broader ones, but 12 nanometers to three nanometers are generally the band passes that you can find. It's the most recommended filter to start with if you're doing narrow band. Um, if you're shooting in town and you know you're gonna be shooting in town a lot and the moon is up and you wanna get the most out of it, doing um, something around an eight nanometer or lower would be what I would recommend to make sure you can image even when like there's a full moon up. Um, look for something like eight or lower. Um, if you can squeeze out like a uh, like a six or a five, those are probably the the best multi-roll. Um, I have a set of three nanometers. They're awesome, but uh, I find that a five nanometer works really well. Um, if you're if you're looking for what filter should I get? That works really, really well and will give me the best performance across a wide variety of stuff. I would look at a five to six nanometer H alpha filter. Five to seven um, actually is where I would recommend because at that band pass, you'll be able to cut out the full moon and all the, all the city lights and you're good to go. But if you want the best performance, the most that you can get, the highest contrast, the threes, are the way to go and currently the only people I know who make threes are Astrodon and Chroma. Um, there's some new companies coming out that are making stuff as well. Uh, Botter has a 3.5 uh, so but they do get expensive so keep that in mind for your budget. Um, an H alpha image would look like this. Uh, this is a shot of M16. This is only about an hour worth of exposure if that. Um, but you can see this is from a light polluted backyard. This was shot in my backyard, light pollution. And actually looking over the city, because um, I'm north of the city, so this is coming up in the south. So I have to get through all the sky glow over there. No problem. Um, no major editing on this. This is just stacked and the levels adjusted. So um, you can see all that structure that you get out of there. So if you're looking to get started, uh, like a monochrome camera and an H-alpha filter, you are able to capture beautiful black and white images like this and get beautiful images of nebulas right out of the gate. So if you're asking me, if you're getting started, I would not even jump to a color camera. I'd go right to the black and white and get yourself a hydrogen alpha filter and you're going to have a field day with what you can do with that camera setup. Now the next filter that we hear about a lot in uh, narrowband is of course oxygen three or O3. O3 is over here in the blue, green, turquoise part of the spectrum. Uh, O3 is really popular because it's emitted by most planetary and emission nebulas. And 
can add some detail there. It does give a different look than H-alpha. And these, of course, are available in 12 nanometer to 3 nanometer as well. Now, here's the caveat with O3 filters. The narrower you can buy one, the better. And the reason is there is light pollution and moonlight actually emit in this frequency of light. So that 500 nanometers that it says right up here, that bluish turquoise part of the spectrum, moonlight is about the same color. So in order to get the most effective use out of your O3 filter from a light polluted location, the narrower you can get, the better. Three is if money were no object, three would be the best way to go because it cuts out as much as possible and makes it as useful as possible. Um, but somewhere in that five to seven range is good too. But if you can definitely get it on the narrower side, uh, it's worth the investment. Um, I would go broader on the hydrogen and narrower on the O3 um, in all aspects, just so you can get the most performance and the most use out of it. Um, so this would be the second recommended narrowband filter. So if you're starting to collect them and add them to your wheel, hydrogen alpha is the first one, then add O3. And an O3 image looks a lot like this. Um, you still get the structure there, but you can see it looks very different from the hydrogen image. Shot in the same light polluted backyard. Um, this is a three nanometer oxygen three that shot this. Now the last filter that you hear about a lot when we're talking narrow band is sulfur or S2. Um, and it's way over here in the red part of the spectrum. Here's the hydrogen line right here. S2 is even further. That is uh, 672 nanometers. So it's, it's almost infrared, but not quite. Um, one thing to mention about this is there's not a lot of sulfur present in the night sky. Um, it, it is there. It does exist. There is quite a few objects that have it, but it's in comparison to the other two, the hydrogen and the oxygen, there's not a whole lot of S2 floating out there. So S2 would be a filter that I would recommend as being your last addition to your, your collection personally. Um, these are available in 12 nanometer and three na down to three nanometer. Uh, because this is way over in the red part of the spectrum like hydrogen is, you don't have to worry like O3 that it has to be ultra narrow. Um, with this one, um, you'd be fine with something like eight nanometers or narrower. You could go to 12, 12 would be fine, but most people are using somewhere between five and eight uh, nanometer bandpass. And then of course, if you want the top, you can go to the threes. Uh, this is a three nanometer um, sulfur two image. And if you wanna see them all compared side by side, um, this gives you the view of all three different uh, sets or all three filters that are generally um, using all that. Um, I will say uh, real quick, today's probably going to run a little bit long, so um, bear with me and I will uh, get to your questions here at the end, but we probably are going to run over a little bit today. Um, so here's the three different ones. You have H-alpha O3S2, and this is basically a set of filters that's used by the Hubble Space Telescope. That's why they're so popular. And it gives you images like this, like the Hubble palette, um, where you can actually assign different 
colors and different images. Um, but those three images that you just saw were combined to make this shot. Um, another way you can go about it is uh, by color, which is H alpha and O3, and you can combine those um, to make a by color image like this. Um, so let's wrap through this real quick, and then we can get to questions. Like I said, we'll probably run a little long today. Um, this one, there's a lot of information in there. Um, another narrowband filter that you can find out on the market is, of course, hydrogen beta. Um, H beta, you don't get too much um, use out of because H alpha shows you all the same details, and there's a lot more uh, signal that the cameras are sensitive to in H alpha, which is in the red, as opposed to the blue green color of H beta. Um, you can find these 15 to 3 nanometers, but they're generally for more research applications or something very specific. Um, if if you want it, it's there, but a lot of people do not use the H-beta for imaging because the H-alpha handles it. Um, H-beta sits right over here in the blue part of the spectrum. Um, the last one here is for narrowband is another particular filter called nitrogen or N2. Uh, this is right next to H-alpha, um, right over here. Now, the thing to remember with N2, um, it shows really interesting detail in planetary nebulas and some other nebulas, but you have to go really, really narrow in the H-alpha filter to separate them. So if you're using a H-alpha filter that has a bandpass of 5 nanometers or broader, the N2 is actually brought into that filter. So that filter covers both of those wavelengths in that filter. But if you want to get very specific and you want to split those two wavelengths of light to get those individual details, you have to go to the 3 nanometer filter because an H-alpha an 3 nanometer does not pass this wavelength of light, but a 5 does. So, and 5 and broader does. So if you're really interested in planetaries then and you want this very specific detail, you have to go down to the 3 nanometers and you have to get the H alpha three nanometer and then the nitrogen filter will also be a three nanometer. So um, very interesting if you're studying certain nebulas, it can add a different depth to your image, but um, they're very specialized filters and you don't see them too much. Um, like I said, we're gonna run over today, uh, but this is one topic right here that everyone asks about. It's a new thing. It's the multi-band narrowband filters. Um, there's some, gonna be some details in here that a lot of people have been asking about. So uh, like I said, we're running a little long today, but this, this is probably the section that you're probably gonna wanna see the most if you're shooting DSLR, mirrorless, or one-shot color. So in the last couple years, these multi-band, narrow-band filters have been released from various companies. These pass multiple wavelengths of light, very similar to a broadband filter, but they're very precise wavelengths. They're very selective on what's being passed. So they're not broadband, they're multi-band, narrow-band filters. This allows color cameras to perform and obtain narrow-band images effectively. And let me explain that. So there are two types of camera sensors on the market, black and white or monochrome or color. And a color camera has 
a set of each pixel has a little filter in front of it red green and blue and those are basically what allows the camera to produce a color image the red pixels only allow red light to pass the green only allows green and the blue only allows blue uh and so on and so forth just like the rgb filters we talked about earlier the problem is if you want to take those detailed narrowband images um, it cuts down on what the sensor can do narrowband filters only pass certain wavelengths of light and they block all others so um, they reduce the effectiveness of a color camera a black and white camera not so much and i'll go into that in a minute only the pixels pa uh, that have the ability to capture that certain color of light that the filter the narrowband filter passes will be used so let's show some of that in detail if you're using an h alpha filter or let's say a sulfur filter an s2 filter those pass light in the red part of the spectrum and they block all other forms of light so that means only the red pixels on your camera chip are going to be used the green and the blue will not see anything which means you've taken your entire sensor and you've reduced it down to where only at least for this particular little fake sensor i've put here but the sensor we're using right here only 30 percent of the sensor is actually being used when you're using those filters everything else is being wasted let's say you're using an oxygen 3 filter which is in the green part of the spectrum it's the same thing it blocks the blue and it blocks the red that means only your green pixels are going to be used so you're only using 50 percent of your sensor so when you're using color cameras with a narrow band filter you're not getting the full performance of your camera they still work you can still get great images but you're making it a lot harder to, and a lot longer to obtain that because the signal that the sensor is able to produce from the light has been severely mitigated down because it's being blocked so how do you get around that uh, first to, before we jump into that monochrome sensors do not have this problem black and white sensors no problem they don't have that filter in front of them which is called the bear matrix every single pixel activates the same all the time doesn't matter if there's a red green blue h alpha whatever filter you want to put in there the light is always the same across the sensor so you're always getting the full and total performance um, when you're using a monochrome sensor for filters and that's why you see a lot of people move from color to monochrome because the monochrome sensor is always going to give you its top pro full performance and allows you to use those narrowband filters and allows it to be very effective but nowadays things have changed a little bit we have multi-band narrowband filters and these pass multiple wavelengths of light at the same time so the h alpha and s2 will uh, activate the red the o3 activates the green the h beta activates the blue and now you're able to get that beautiful narrow band image with a one-shot color and get the full use of your camera sensor 
So you're able to finally get something like this. This image on the right-hand side was taken by our buddy Trevor at Astro Backyard with his Canon uh, EOS RA and one of these multi-band narrow-band filters. So he's able to get this crazy detail from his backyard using a one-shot color camera. So you get all that structure and depth from, that a, a narrow-band filter produces, but you're doing it in a color camera. So this helps get you the narrow band image it reduces and eliminates the light pollution and it works on a color camera um, so if you're shooting uh, color ccd cmos dslr mirrorless these filters are something to take a look at because you can really open that up um, just to show you guys real quick here's some of the filters these are the ones that i'm aware of um, these are the five filters that i'm aware of for uh, multi-band narrow band um, there's and these are not in order of performance they're in alphabetical order so um, the Optolong L Enhance that's been really popular um, the new one I just found out about is actually the Optolong L Extreme a little bit more narrow um, you have the Radian uh, Triad filters which is OPT's house brand um, those filters are there and of course you have the STC uh, Astro Duo filter. Um, so if you're looking for a multi-band narrow band filter, these are the ones that I would take a look at. Um, they all work pretty well. I've seen amazing images from all of them. Um, you might have to mess with your color balance a bit, but um, if you're looking for a multi-band filter, these are the ones that you hear about pretty much all the time. And they all have very similar attributes, but you figure out which one. You'll notice like the triads, um, those have really narrow, flip this back, have some more, a little bit more narrow band passes. Um, but it just depends on what you're looking for. So these are the filters that, um, if you're looking for a multi-band, these are the ones. Uh, we're going to wrap this up really quick so we can get um, to the questions. Uh, specialty filters. These are filters, filters um, on some of them that you should probably know about they offer certain things um, so let's just uh, go through it real quick uh, clear filters uh, clear filters are really just for focusing and blocking any dust from getting onto your imaging sensor um, you can use them you see them every now and again um, with the larger filter wheels where there's more positions uh, some people like to have those in place uh, it's just a clear no no real major coatings uh, the next one is a dark filter. It's not even a filter. It's literally just a metal or piece of plastic that drops into a, the wheel. Um, this blocks all the light. This allows you to do darks or dark frames for calibrating your images with um, if you don't have a shutter on your camera. And there's a lot of cameras nowadays that don't have a shutter. So instead of putting your cap on the front of the telescope, you could just slide this in front of your camera and take your darks that way. So that's that's a dark filter. It's not really even a filter. Um, another one that you hear about a lot, mainly in planetary imaging, is an infrared pass or IR. Uh, this is a broadband filter. It blocks pretty much the entire visible spectrum out to about six or 700 nanometers is where one starts and then goes over and passes all the infrared light. Uh, this is used for planetary for the most part because it can actually help calm the seeing conditions. So if seeing's really shoddy, um, you can put one of these in. It kind of helps level out uh, 
the detail there. It can also be used for deep sky imaging. Uh, so I shot this last night. I just want to show you guys how this looks. This was the live image through the telescope with the IR filter in place. Seeing was garbage. It was low. Um, but once you stack it, it can help. You're going to process it a little bit. But if this is just a stacked image right here. No, no adjustments made. But you can see that the, the IR filter can really help bring out um, kind of a cleaner image because it eliminates a lot of the visible spectrum and isolates more what um, might be a little bit calmer. So if you're into planetary imaging, an IR filter um, is something to take a look at because it would help uh, level out that. Um, another thing that a lot of people don't mess with much is actually IR imaging of deep sky targets. And it can be really interesting. Um, so this is something I did last year. Over here, this is a the same star field. This is a galaxy um, up near the Heart Nebula called Dwingaloo 1. This is in a section of the Milky Way called the Zone of Avoidance. It's where one of the Milky Way galaxy arms, the dust bands, kind of blocks the background stars. So a lot of the professional observatories actually stay away from it because they're not observing there. But some observations have been done there. Now, if we looked at this field in visible light, it wouldn't be very interesting. There's nothing there. It's just a star field. But if you go back and image it in infrared light, there's a face-on barred spiral galaxy hiding behind the dust. And this is only visible in infrared light. This was taken with one of our Evo Star 150 refractors and this astronomic IR 807 filter, so infrared pass filter. Um, this is only a short set of exposures, but you can see the same star field, but the the cameras are able to pick up some of that detail in infrared light hidden behind the dust, and you can pull out some really cool stuff with it. Um, on Orion and star-forming regions, you'd be amazed how many stars are hiding in the dust. So these infrared pass filters can be used for deep sky imaging in a, a different and unique way. Um, but you have to remember that the focus point for infrared light is different from your imaging, standard imaging visual filters. So uh, if I'm shooting with infrared pass at night for deep sky, I'm generally just doing that because the focus points are so different. Uh, let's pound through this real quick. Um, another filter if you're doing planetary is the ultraviolet or UV or the Venus filter. Another broadband filter. Um, this allows you to see kind of the cloud tops and detail inside on the upper cloud bands of uh, Venus. Um, this is only really used for planetary uh, imaging, but uh, I saw Optolong just came out with one. Astrodon's had one for a while, um, but that is the uh, infrared filter. I'm sorry, ultraviolet. Um, another planetary filter that you see a lot, it's a narrowband filter, it's a methane filter. Uh, these are very, very cool. Uh, you can Google up like what Christopher Goh and some of these planetary imagers are taking a look at. But this is another filter, specialized filter for planetary. And then of course, um, the last filter set is a broadband filter set. These are uh, can be used for color imaging, but they're really made for research. Uh, for photometry where you're measuring the brightness and magnitudes of stars uh, because they're very precisely measured uh, uh, band passes. 
um, covering the different wavelengths. Uh, this is called the Sloan, and they also make a Bessel filter set. They're more specific for um, what you're looking for if you're doing research uh, like photometry. Uh, real quick, we're almost done. Uh, recommended filter sets. Um, if you're using a color camera, I would recommend checking out some kind of light pollution filter, a CLS filter from one of the companies we talked about. Uh, maybe look at one of those multi-band, narrow-band filters. And then if you just want to have something special on the side, um, you could have an H-alpha filter to have just give you some unique stuff. Um, if you're doing one-shot color, uh, these two would be ideal. Um, and then you can always throw in an H-alpha if you want something special. For monochrome cameras, uh, just a basic set. If you're just getting started, um, just look at the basic uh, five position wheels like what's right here. Uh, you have luminance, red, green, blue, and then I'd also look at a hydrogen alpha to fill up the fifth section. Um, if you don't care about luminance, um, I don't shoot luminance. What I do is red, green, blue, and then I combine them to make what's called a uh, false or synthetic luminance if I'm doing that. That way I can open up my fifth position rather than uh, waste it on a luminance filter. So I have red, green, blue, HAO3. So that would be, um, if you wanna do that bicolor imaging and add an extra narrow band, but you're limited on a five position wheel, pop that luminance out and go red, green, blue, H-alpha, O3. Now if you're a high end or you're looking to make the jump to something full sets, um, you have a bigger wheel, like a seven position, you have luminance, red, green, blue, HA, O3, narrower the better on the O3, and S2. And that would be the recommended three position set there. If you don't want the luminance in there, you could pop that out and put something else in there if you wanna get fancy. Um, but that's about it. That's all I've got for today. Um, that was, I know we ran over a little bit, lots of information, but if you have questions, now would be the time to uh, let those out. I will be happy to get to those. Um, so let's see what we've got here real quick. First question, is it reasonable to use a broadband filter for light pollution and a narrow band filter for nebula if you live in an urban area or would that eliminate too much light? Uh, no, that's exactly what you would do. You would just up your exposures if you need to dig deeper. And that's the nice thing about astrophotography is if things look dim, take more pictures and stack more pictures. Because um, when you use a filter, you are reducing light. So um, you can make up with that from either longer exposures or more exposures to stack in your final image. So that's where I would go with that. Um, if just starting, uh, next question, if just starting into astrophotography, should I begin in black and white or color? I just learned about stacking and Photoshop also. I personally, I started black and white with an H-alpha filter. And personally, I think you get more um, gratifying images faster, as long as you don't mind them not being in color. But you start to see all the structure and all the details of nebulas if you're using like a black and white camera and then add the like a hydrogen filter in there. You know, in the summertime and some of the winter nebulas, what you can get with that. Um, that's how I would go personally. But um, I know color, everybody likes the pretty pictures. So the color is uh, definitely it's there, so it just depends on what you're what you're looking for. 
Um, last question, unless other people have got some stuff there. Um, I have a Celestron 8SE with a Canon EOS Rebel T6 camera. What average length of exposure should I start out on nebulas? That's a tricky one. So there's a couple uh, issues that come up with that. The 8SE is an Altaz telescope unless you have the wedge or something like that. So the problem with Alt-Az telescopes, and we're gonna do a whole video on this, the stars travel across the sky in a street, here, I'll make myself bigger, cause I can. Um, the stars travel, the, uh, there we go. The stars travel across the sky in an arc. When you have an Alt-Az telescope, it tracks like this. It's kind of over, up, over, up, or over, down, over, down. A stair-step matter. It's not that fluid arc. So what happens during long exposures is the center target is going to stay pinpoint and everything else is going to spin. And that's called field rotation. So when you're shooting on an Altaz mount, that's a limitation that you have to deal with. There's not really an easy way to get around that. There's some expensive ways to get around that but not easy ways to get around it. So if you're shooting out as, you're probably limited to under 30 seconds. The 8SE um, is also an F10 system. So F10 is really quite slow, regardless of the telescope design. Um, so uh, having a focal reducer can help speed that up. And then of course, if you have a wedge, um, or an equatorial mount, the wedge will take away from that. So if you have a wedge, start experimenting with 30 seconds and go up from there. You're just going to have to mess with it and see what works well for you. So um, that's that's how I would go about it. If you can get yourself an equatorial mount for that telescope in the future, it, it would make things a lot easier because then you can add auto-guiding and stuff, and then you can go minutes. That's where you really want to go with that. Okay, so if that's it for questions this week, I don't see anything else out there. Next week, our friend Richard Wright from Software Bisque is going to be here. And Richard's going to be talking on how to pick your camera and match that up. So if you're getting into imaging and you want to learn how to pick a camera, Richard's going to be here next week. Uh, again, 10 a.m. Pacific time. He's going to be joining us uh, remotely. And we're really excited to have him here. So he will probably be doing most of the talking next week. But uh, if there's anything that we didn't cover or anything that you'd like more details on, you can email us at support at skywatcherusa.com. But other than that, we appreciate having you guys here. As always, if you like the video, you can subscribe to the channel. And that way you get notified of any new videos coming up. And uh, other than that, we will see you guys next week. Have a safe three-day weekend. Stay healthy and clear skies.